All right. Welcome, everyone. Hope you're having a good Saturday. Today, I'm talking to Julia Blum, who is a very prolific, insightful, and interesting blogger in the psychedelic space. I came across Julia's work a few months ago on Medium, where she has written these incredibly in-depth, sharp, and perceptive essays on her journey of psychedelic healing from dealing with many uh, addictions uh, and other psychological issues and doing ayahuasca uh, and psilocybin and other compounds that have now uh, cured her of her, all of her issues that she had initially. Um, so I invited Julia to contribute an essay to my Substack, and that went live this morning. Um, and we're actually going to probably talk about that maybe another time. Um, I encourage everyone to read that essay, which is about um, bad trips or or failing to integrate lessons that one learns from their trips. Um, many, many people who do psychedelics don't end up benefiting for a number of reasons. They, they're unable to actually improve their lives. And Julia outlines a few of those reasons why that may be um, and how to get around that. So I encourage people to check out that essay. I will link to it in the description of this podcast, which will be available on Spotify and Apple. Um, but for today, we just want to get to know Julia, talk about her journey in psychedelic healing, how she got into psychedelics. Um, and I think uh, we'll have a good time. Julia, welcome. Hi, Ra. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing, so I'm really happy to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I started reading your writing, and I was, was very inspired. Um, similar to just reading Michael Pollan's book, which I know you've read as well. I started reading your work, and I was like, wow, Like this is kind of what I want to do, is I want to go through this process of deep inner healing and then share it with a wide audience. So thanks for uh, the inspiration. Thank you so much for saying that. I think that's how it happens. You know, I started writing because I was reading a biography. It was a memoir by this woman who had become sober and it was not at all psychedelics related, but the way she wrote that book, like she left nothing out. It was so raw. And after I finished that book, I was committed to bring that same rawness to my writing. And I think that's how it works, right? Like it's, as soon as you meet someone who is so unapologetically themselves, they give you permission to do the same. So I'm happy to hear that, that my writing ignited that in you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important to acknowledge where your influences come from. Um, for me, it's been people like Michael Pollan, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, um, and Jordan Peterson, the way he talks about psychedelic work and ties it into broader uh, biblical themes or when he talks about the hero's journey, mm -hmm. it's like all, all these things and yeah. influence you and then shape the way you approach these very powerful medicines. Yeah. So why don't we talk about um, what led you to seek psychedelic therapy? What, what kind of issues were you dealing with that led you to eventually go on this path? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me paint the picture a little bit. When I discovered psychedelic, I was living in New York and I was in an MBA program at a really good school. And I had this really on paper, fabulous life. I had a, a great network, was surrounded by a lot of friends. We honestly didn't study that much. We were partying a lot. I had my job after, you know, lined up. The company had paid for the MBA. So I should have been the happiest ever. And it was quite the opposite. I found myself to be really depressed. And I'd struggled with an eating disorder pretty much since my late teens. And that just got worse and worse. And I really found myself, you know, battling with this inner void that I couldn't seem to fill with anything, whether that be food or alcohol or drugs or shopping or traveling, right? Um, whatever I did, I just internally felt extremely empty and emotionally deprived. And I struggled to overcome the eating disorder for quite a few years. I tried a lot. I'd work with several different therapists. I worked with specific eating disorder coaches. I'd done on, gone on silent retreats, all these things, right? Um, but it just got worse and worse. And even the 
professionals were telling me you need more help, but they couldn't really tell me where to get more help. And um, I was almost going to go on medication, but I just, you know, had a very strong hunch that that wouldn't solve my problem, but rather, you know, put a bandaid on it and might make me feel better, but it's not going to solve the root cause of why I was feeling this way. And that's when I discovered, you know, Michael Pollan's book and pretty much as soon as I discovered the topic, I became obsessed with it, which I think I share with a lot of people <laughs> because it is so fascinating. So I spent an entire year to educate myself on it before I even touched a, a single psychedelic. And I became really hopeful about this being, you know, my last option because I felt like I was running out of options. I mean, yes, I hadn't tried medication, but that didn't feel like a real option to me. So I was a little bit, you know, there was a strong urgency. I felt like I was running out of time. I was in a very bad mental head space. I was definitely suicidal at times. And I felt so much guilt uh, surrounding those feelings because I had everything right on paper. My life was perfect. Why was I feeling this way? Yeah, it seems to be for many people, psychedelics are the last resort and they end up being the saving grace but I wish psychedelics were more of a, of a first option or a second option or a third option for people. Yeah. But, but because they're not mainstream, because they're not, because doctors don't prescribe them or your ordinary therapist isn't going to be supporting them. Um, although one friend of mine um, who is dealing with a lot of um, uh, anxiety issues, his therapist actually just sort of whispered to him like, like, dude, you need to try MDMA. Like these other things are not mm -hmm. as effective um, for you, you should probably try this out. But hopefully, as the stuff becomes more and more mainstream, more people are, are more people might be willing to try this early on rather than try and exhaust everything else and spend years upon years with harmful medications, with yeah. but potentially even doing potentially spiritually bypassing their issues um, in various means, which you talked about in your article. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so let's um, so let, let's continue on with uh, your story. So you're dealing with all these different things. Um, how or which psychedelic did you try first, and in what context, in what setting, and what was the intention mm -hmm. behind that first experience you had? Yeah. So the first psychedelic experience I ever had was with LSD, and. It was not, I would say, this setup of I want to have a therapeutic experience. It was more I want to have a psychedelic experience. And I did it with seven friends. And we were on vacation in Brazil and had a beautiful house in the jungle. And we everyone did it for the first time. And I think for everyone, it was one of the most beautiful days we had. Um, it was a very special day. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, healing, I would say, but it confirmed all the assumptions that I made surrounding the psychedelic experience um, and what it might be able to do for me. So it made me even more curious. And from then on, I began experimenting with mushrooms. And then pretty quickly, I discovered, you know, ayahuasca, and I'd heard about it for quite some time. I, I recognized that I needed really something like strong <laughs> and strong in, in the sense of like the therapeutic value of it. And I'm not saying that mushrooms or LSD can't be therapeutic. hundred percent they can, but you know, ayahuasca is different. Ayahuasca is not a, a psychedelic experience in the sense that like you might just have a fabulous time. Most of the time it's the deep healing work. And I pretty quickly realized that that's what I needed. And I was obviously very hesitant because Back then, there was still not that much, you know, written about it. And I didn't really know where to go. But, you know, one day I was watching this documentary and I went to bed. And the next morning I woke up and I knew it was time and I booked. And three weeks later, I was in one of the places that was mentioned in the documentary. And, you know, when they say when when you're supposed to drink ayahuasca, they say you hear the call. And I always thought that was such, you know, bullshit, such spiritual woo woo. But I mean, I woke up that day and suddenly all the fear was gone. There were no concerns whatsoever. I was 100% sure that's what I was meant to do. And I went and I wasn't, yeah, I was nervous, but like I was no longer scared of the experience. And this was in, was it Costa Rica that you went to? 
Yes, I, yeah, I went to Costa Rica um, to a place called Rhythmia, which is probably one of the more upscale ayahuasca retreats. At that point, you know, it was important for me to find an experience um, that was completely legal and had certain, you know, I guess, harm reduction measures. And at Rhythmia, you know, they have medical staff. Everyone does a medical intake. They have lots of helpers. And overall, it just seemed like a super legit place. So I felt confident about it. It was very expensive, but I thought if this solved my eating disorder, I would probably pay, you know, even twice that. <laughs> I'd already spent so much money on, you know, trying to recover for so many years. And so I went and it was probably still to this day, one of the most transformative experiences of my life. It was extremely profound. And I'm happy to talk more about what specifically happened at that retreat, but maybe on a bigger picture, you know, I came back and I had this afterglow, which a lot of people have after ayahuasca. And I truly for a few weeks thought all my problems were solved, but they were not. <laughs> I relapsed on my eating disorder a few weeks later. Um, and that just, you know, put me back into a very frustrated place because I started thinking, oh, great. So ayahuasca also didn't work. You're, you know, you're done. Like that was the last resort. <laughs> so I, while the suicidality was completely gone um, since that ayahuasca experience, I still, you know, mentally was struggling and I was still struggling with addictive behaviors. So I spent an entire year integrating that one week with like what you do for ceremonies in a row at Rhythmia within one week. And it really changed my life in good, but also in uncomfortable ways. And it took me a lot to integrate it. And, you know, a year later, I recognized that I was still with battling with this addictive eating disorder. It was bulimia. So it was really compulsive binging and purging. It felt, it felt so completely out of my control. Like I might as well have been a drug addict just that was food, right? That's how it felt. Um, it wasn't just, you know, I struggled to diet properly or whatever. Um, it felt much, much more out of control than that, I would say. So after a year, I decided to okay, Just to pause for a second. So yeah. to precisely describe what you were going through. So by eating disorder, you mean that you had an addiction for food that you kept on eating and eating unhealthy foods? Yeah, so I started dieting when I was 15 and I began skipping meals because, and I was very skinny back then, but I was convinced that I needed to be skinnier. <laughs> and my environment, I had a lot of people in my environment that were confirming that to me. And, you know, I was a very insecure teenage girl, so I dieted a lot and I was over-exercising like crazy. And then after two or three years of that, my body fought back and generated these really immense binge urges, right? Because it didn't get enough food. And that's what the body then does when it's in starvation mode. And I, at some point, had to respond to them. Um, but, you know, most people, when that happens, they just stop dieting and they realize, okay, I'm not like supposed to do that. But I was such a perfectionist person. I kept going. And then I would always be in these cycles of like extreme restriction and trying to control my food. But then, you know, realizing that I'm not really in control, and that's, you know, when it became a coping, uh, a, a coping habit over time, right? That was when I was 16, 17. And I was 26, 27 when my eating disorder was still really bad. So for 10 years, you know, I just used food for everything pretty much. So you went from extreme dieting to extreme overeating? Yeah, overeating. And then, of course, I had a this inner critic in me that told me you can't possibly you know maintain all this food you're going to be huge and that was my biggest fear right like I was very concerned about my appearance so I started throwing up and once you do that it's very quickly you lose any inhibitions around it um, and it's that's it's a really dangerous addiction because there's the emotional part but there's also just the physiological part that you know when you purge your food, and then again, your body is starved, the next day it's going to generate more cravings, right? So I was in this habit, in this pattern where I would just binge on crazy amounts of food, throw it up, the next day try to eat normal, but my body was still generating these cravings, and then it's super hard to get out of that. Mm. And was this throwing up, did this have anything to do with eating the wrong foods, or, or was it no. a deeper psychological issue? 
No, it was self-induced. It was self-induced. Right. But, it, you wasn't know, now, eating, in hindsight, it wasn't that you were eating. It wasn't that you were having lactose or gluten or something that was oh, bad no, for no. you. It was just a... No. Yeah. Um, and, and bulimia, yeah. you essentially overeat. And then to compensate, you make yourself purge. And there's different types of bulimia. There are people who have exercise bulimia, so they will overeat. And then they go to the gym for five hours. A lot of people have, you know the purging where you make yourself the food up again and then some people use laxatives etc but sadly it's super super common like now I know so many girls that struggle with this and I only know so because I started talking about it and then they started opening up about it right but it's sadly like it's so secretive and it's I think one of the most shameful addictions and specifically eating orders that you can have but yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's terrible. It's such a cage. It's a prison. And this eating disorder, do you think it came from anything in your childhood? Did something in particular you think triggered it? Something from your parents or from your environment or from your social interactions? Or are the origins more mysterious as they sometimes can be? <laughs> well, they were mysterious for all my life because I thought, I, you know, growing up in a super happy childhood and I my parents devoted themselves to grazing me um like you know few people that I know like they were so committed and so loving and I didn't understand why I was struggling so bad I always as a kid I remember I don't remember much from my childhood before the age of 12 which I always thought was funny but then the more inner work I did the more it became a little bit of a red flag like what's going on there right um but yeah I for the longest time, I did not know what was going on. And uh, now looking back that I went through the healing process, everything makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that I had this eating disorder. It, in some sense, saved me, right? Um, and it's all, yes, it's all leading back to my childhood. And that's, you know, those are the insights that I got from work with plant medicine, mostly ayahuasca and wachuma, which is a cactus. Um, but yeah, it it revealed to me the beliefs that I took away from childhood. The first one being that something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough, which was a result of being physically abused. The second one being it's mm. not safe to feel, which was the result of an emotionally overbearing parent that couldn't control themselves. Right. And mm. yeah, there were some other ones, but those were the two big ones, right? I'm not good enough is what started the whole dieting and I need to look like a Victoria's Secret model you know, it's free. And then it's not safe mm. to feel is really what was the foundation of the eating disorder, because eating is the best way not to feel. If you binge, you completely check out, right? Mm. And maybe one other thing that's interesting in that regard is that, you know, I grew up, I was like a pretty problematic kid. I was a terrible teenager. Something switched and I, all my life became about how can I get other people's validation? And that's when I went on this track of like becoming this overachiever and I got really good grades and I went to university at a really young age and got this like super high paying job at a really young age. Right. And I was prizing myself for my rationale and my reason. Like I was such a rational person. I had no emotional life whatsoever which in the business world is really beneficial, right? It gets you far. And the plant medicine work has now revealed to me that, you know, of course that was all overcompensation. Deep down, I was a deeply sensitive person. I was an empath and I just shut off everything in childhood because it didn't feel safe to be that version of me, to be myself, right? I didn't feel seen for who I was. So I became something else. And that inner tension, that's, you know, that's the, birth ground for an addiction hmm. yeah it's interesting how being very ambitious and driven at a very young age is is very good and yields all these interesting things you can become um highly successful at a young age you can work at a high-paying job um there are all these good things but there aren't but it isn't without any costs and it's it's because I'm I very much relate to that as somebody who's who's very young 21 who mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. has, has a a very large platform for my age and has written for, you know, some of the biggest publications in the country and have done podcasts with some of the greatest minds of our generation. Um, all, all of that is, is, is amazing and 
having gratitude for that is also very important as I've learned in my last two MDMA trips. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there is a darker side to that as well. There is a side to that that is often concealed or is hidden um, amidst all of the, the adulation, all of the, all of the success, all of the retweets and likes and mm-hmm, article mm-hmm. views that there is this side, which uh, I'm actually writing about right now. And I usually reserve um, any of those future writing insights uh, <laughs> to share with my audience. But I, but I will say that um, there, there is definitely an element for me for being so ambitious and driven at a very young age of looking for a kind of validation that really can only come from within. There's this constant seeking of, of of approval from the external world of, Hey, you know, look at me, look how, look how good I am. Look how capable I am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Look at how intelligent and how worthy I am. You should pay attention to me. Um, And then some of that for me is just stemmed from um, social interactions all the way down to like kindergarten um, cause I was, I was, I was bullied pretty viciously. Um, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. in middle school and high school, the, the bullying kind of evolved and it, it turned into something, um, that, that wasn't just as explicit as, as, as bullying in kindergarten, but of social exclusion of not being cool enough of not fitting into various friend groups. So there was always this kind of hole of like, I don't belong and I don't fit in. Yeah. No one's really validating me. No one's really validating my existence as a human being and acknowledging Mm -hmm. all of my many beautiful gifts that I have. And so then from that, there's this kind of radical reorientation towards the external world where you're looking for approval through your, through the gifts that you have through writing, through podcasting, through whatever creative means that you use and you, and then, and then in my case and in your case, you become very, very successful, but you fail to acknowledge that there there's something lurking behind all of this drive that you have um, that you should pay attention to, because if you don't, you'll for forever be on this hedonic treadmill and never realize what's lying underneath that, which is a, a hole of self-validation or of, of spiritual connection. You know, oftentimes it's, it's that God shaped hole that we have for validation or approval mm-hmm. or union with something higher that that just validates who we are in our existence and for people who haven't really felt that then they're stuck in the physical world looking for that validation from humans from other people from social media and other things um but so for you so many of these realizations you had through your psychedelic journeys um i i do want to circle back to that first ayahuasca trip so you you did that. Um, I'm, I'm, and and we we only have about half an hour as well. So there's there's a few things I want to ask you about. But what what are some of the broad themes from that first trip that you were struggling to integrate for a year before you decided to do another ayahuasca journey? Well, it's pretty much exactly what you were just talking about: this lack of self esteem. Because I so on the most the most profound of the four nights i was reliving the experience of being physically hit and it was a very somatically challenging journey i you know morphed into my seven-year-old self that was just punched in the stomach and my stomach was hurting like crazy not just that night but already the two nights before which of course i didn't connect to the ayahuasca i thought you know i just had cramps and it was like all day and in the evenings not just during the ceremonies and that's how the medicine works um so you know it brought up that experience which I kind of knew had happened but I never knew how much it had impacted me and then I you know was crying for maybe five hours I, I, I just want to interject just for a second yeah. if you don't mind well, when you're talking about physical abuse um, I don't know if you've shared this before in your writing I can't recall but can you but was it from um, are you comfortable saying um, wh- who it was from? Like, was it from parents? Yeah, or yeah, it friends was from or a teacher? parent. It was from a oh, parent. Okay. Um, okay. I was just, you know, beat up as a, as a kid. Yeah. And, mm. you know, and did, now... did that come from a place of like love? You know, because yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, <laughs> everything it sounds... comes from love. You know, I love this saying everything we do is either love or a call for love. And yes. that specific action was a call for love because my caretaker had such issues to get to me because I was so, 
I closed myself because I felt so overwhelmed in my sensitive nature and being an empath. And there were so many emotions already on the table that I didn't feel like there was space for mine too. So I shut everything off. And as a result, you know, that caretaker wanted nothing more than me to be emotionally responsive and I couldn't give that to them, right? And that's what, you know, triggered anger in them. And then of course, there's also the generational perspective, which I've now, you know, I had ceremonies where I went through that parent's whole family line and I saw exactly where the anger and the abuse came from, right? Like someone who does that is always someone who, you know, receives that in their own childhood. That's that's how it works, right? And trauma travels through generations yes. until someone has the courage to heal yes. it. And I know 100% if I wouldn't do this work, if I ever would have children, which for the longest time I thought I could never because of the way I grew up and the way, you know, I was, uh, I would have 100%, you know, done the same mistakes. Even if you don't want to, right? It's not, these behaviors are so subconscious mm. it's not it's not about willpower it's not about willpower at all mm. yeah 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 no i 100 percent agree and i know exactly what you're talking about um and there's definitely room for compassion for people who um deal with you in a very aggressive rude and demeaning way um parents family members friends it that there's a whole a chain of causes prior to them that have led to them acting in this way. Um, and so it, it's, it's important to, to realize that even though it's, it's often very difficult to have uh, compassion for somebody who is um, treating you or mistreating you in such an egregious way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, you know, sitting with the medicine and had this really difficult experience and the crying wouldn't stop. And I was so loud. They put me, put me on my mattress outside. <laughs> and the shaman at some point came and she sat down to me. We, she helped me process what was happening. And she asked me, you know, what belief did, or what insight did you take away from that experience? And I just, you know, a part that I wasn't my ego, but another part just immediately said that something's wrong with me, that like I'm broken, right? Something's not right with me. And that belief I had all my life, I never felt like a whole person, right? And I think that's sadly what happens. Mm. Um, and when you're abused, and it doesn't even need to be physical abuse, it can be verbal abuse, right, too, and in childhood because of those formative years. But she asked me, do you think you can forgive? And I was crying and I was saying, no, who can, like, how could I be able to forgive someone who beats an innocent child? It seemed you know, unthinkable to me. And then she said, well, you can ask the medicine for help and you're going to be ready to forgive at some point. Like, don't rush it. And then she left and I was wow. crying and I continued crying. And then at some point I was like, I can't cry anymore. And I whispered out like, please help me forgive. And uh, that was probably the most mystical minute of my entire life that followed. Like all my, or many of my ayahuasca experiences have been very grounded and very emotional rather than, you know, super, uh, I guess, hallucinogenic and um, but then the wind turned me around and I was lying outside and I stared stared up at the sky, stars above me and I just took in a really long deep breath because I was like I'm so done I'm so exhausted I took a long deep breath in and with that one breath it felt like I was inhaling love straight from the stars above me aka the universe into my own heart and it just filled up my heart. And the next realization that I had was, wow, where that came from, you know, the universe, I'm very into like astrophysics and I know the universe is expanding, right? And it's unlimited. And that was followed by the realization, wow, that love that I just received is unlimited. There's, it's, we're never gonna run out of that. And I went home that night and I just wrote down one sentence in my phone, which was love is the fabric of the universe. And that's, you know, completely changed my life to look at the world this way. And the integration was tricky because I came back into a life that was carefully crafted by someone who got all their validation from the outside. And now I was in a place where I no longer needed that. I finally had that self-esteem, but I was not in an environment for someone who, you know, has a healthy self-esteem would thrive in. So I had to change a lot of my environment. I had to leave New York. Eventually I had to change my job, right? And all these other things, but those were all difficult decisions to make because I thought, you know, I have a perfect life. Like I'm making good money. I have really lovely friends. Why can't I just continue living like that, right? 
but I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to change things. And that's, you know, that's where integration comes in. What, what I'm, which I'm super passionate about, as you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious um, if you, if you don't mind sharing, um, wh- which job did you switch into? Cause it, it must be hard leaving um, the business sector, right? Was there anything else yeah. you could find that was more closely aligned with your true self? Well, I'm still in the transition period now, but um, because I was bound to that company because they paid for my MBA, I sort of had promised to come back for two years. It was a consulting firm. Um, so I couldn't really change that much. And I just, you know, had to find some workarounds to make it, you know, more manageable because I was working crazy hours, like 80 plus hour work weeks every week. And I was traveling to client sites, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, what I'm doing now is that I'm spending around half of my time still consulting, but as a freelancer for companies in the psychedelic space. And that's both bigger companies like MAPS, nonprofits, startups, mm. companies like that. And with, I would say, another quarter of my time, I freelance write for companies in the psychedelic space. And then with the mm. other quarter, I've started, you know, preparing myself to what I think I ultimately want to do, which is help people through the process. And I don't know exactly yet what that's going to look like, but I I think there is a space for me to create from the experience that I've had and the support that I've personally received. It just made all the difference for me, right? And the integration. And that's why, you know, I'm, I just started a certificate for psychedelic therapies and integration. That's a year long, you know, training program basically for practitioners. And I began working one-on-one with people who use plant medicine to recover from eating disorders. I began helping as a guardian at ceremonies. So I'm doing, you know, a lot of the, I would say the groundwork increasingly. So it's an interesting balance right now because I mean, everything is psychedelics related at this point, but half of it is like companies and the other half is working with people. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So from your first ayahuasca journey, the, the, the realizations you had were this negative self-image you had of thinking that you're broken, that there's something wrong with you, right? Um, and then the second part, from what I'm hearing, is this deeper realization about um, your childhood, because you were saying that you didn't realize how bad it was. And yeah. I, I definitely relate to that in many ways. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be physical, but it emotional um or from school just any sort of stresses when you're in it it doesn't feel that bad and then when you're because you kind of sort of become numb to it and you're unable to realize the actual toll that it's having on your mind mm-hmm. but then when you move away from it you really look back um and often it takes psychedelic work it, it doesn't just take looking back it takes these deep journeys into the unconscious to see just how much this specific event or behavior or person or action was having a negative impact on you. Um, so those were kind of the two things that you took away from the trip. I'm sure there was many more. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what led you to uh, do the the second ayahuasca journey and what was your intention going into it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a few things happened in that year, right, that I was integrating. And one of the things that happened was that I did a 10-day Vipassana retreat, which I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> as a meditation um, fan, right? I'm sure you're familiar uh, with Vipassana. Yeah, it's I've, a te- I've, never ten done, days. I've never done the 10-day retreat. I haven't done any in-person yeah. retreat, unfortunately. I've done um, one online retreat and a couple of like self-imposed do-it-by-myself retreats, but I would like to do um, an actual retreat in person once uh, civilization reboots hopefully soon (laughs) yeah i definitely recommend it it's up with my ayahuasca difficult ayahuasca experience is one of the hardest things that i've ever done but it was very worth it for me and so for those people who don't know the 10 day vipassana retreat is a silent meditation retreat where you literally don't do anything but meditate for 10 hours a day you don't have obviously don't have your tech you also can't write you can't read you can't exercise you just meditate and then you can sometimes go on a walk that's pretty much it and I did that and I think at the fifth or sixth day a memory came back that I had no recollection of of sexual abuse and I came out of that retreat and for half a year I didn't know if it happened or if I was making things up in my mind and I you know 
began looking into other therapy modalities to help me with that. And I found IFS, which I'm a huge, huge proponent of. It's it's called internal family systems therapy. I'm also training in that right now. And it's a modality that's, it is technically talk therapy, but it's also kind of meditative because you go into a meditative state and it basically assumes the multiplicity of your personality, um, meaning that you're made up out of different parts and that each part has good intentions at its core. So for example, you know, I had this like binge eating part, right? What was that all about? And then I had this part that would get depressed on the clock once a month for the two weeks before my period, which is a condition called PMDD that 5% of women have and 50% of women who have it attempt to take their life because the depression from it is so, so bad, right? And so I had that next to the eating disorder. I had this like cyclical depression. And then I had this experience of like this trauma coming back. And I began working with an IFS therapist. And I had a session where she was talking to the binge eating part. And it was, was virtually like now me as I talked to you was not part of that conversation. It was, she truly was in dialogue with a part of me. And she asked like, why do you still feel the need to compulsively eat so much? And the part responded, because I don't want to attract any more attention. And suddenly I was overwhelmed with emotion and I was crying like crazy for half an hour. And that was the moment when I realized, okay, something happened because you can't, you can make up thoughts and that's really confusing, but you definitely can't make up emotions. Right. And I knew that what that part was referring to was that sexual abuse. So that's why I returned to ayahuasca was to heal the sexual abuse that then with more therapy, um, more and more pieces started coming back. And before I went to ayahuasca, I pretty much had like a pretty full, like my full memory had come back of what had happened. Um, and I, I kind of hypothesized that it might have to do with, you know, this hormonal mood disorder, which I had, which kind of makes sense, right? Sexual trauma and then female hormones that that would be related. And by the way, for this like hormonal mood disorder that I have, there is no cure whatsoever. The only treatment is antidepressants or like the contraceptive pill, neither which I wanted to do. Um, so I decided to drink more ayahuasca <laughs> and I had a ceremony where I essentially relived that experience once again, but in the most beautiful and healing way. Like I saw myself lying underneath the guy and what happened was that I disassociated from the situation completely, which is part of like why I didn't remember it. So I didn't, you know, after like the initial, I don't want this, I just completely checked out of my body and I wasn't present with it anymore. And I saw myself underneath the guy and my whole body was just vibrating with love and acceptance and all the shame that I felt from that event because I didn't push him off more and I couldn't, you know, help myself more completely went away in that ceremony. And I came away from that ceremony. And since that ceremony, all these hormonal issues have been completely gone, right? So that's why I'm another reason why I'm so passionate about root cause healing. I really think that for all our mental ailments, there's always a reason. And if we don't understand that reason yet, it just means we haven't dug deep enough yet, but it's there. It's somewhere in your subconscious. Like the human mind is perfect. Everything makes perfect sense if you really understand it. There's no random, you know, brain chemistry and stuff. I really do believe that based on my own experience. Mm. Yeah, and I think there's a deeper kind of spiritual idea to this as well of, of the, you, you can't do this by yourself. You know, that, that's a pretty common spiritual idea that you need to attach yourself to something higher, that your own willpower, your own conscious mind is not going to be able to heal these deep, wounds that you have, these deeply ingrained thought patterns, these addictions, these way these ways of looking at yourself and of looking at others, it's very difficult to do that. So there is yeah. a point of, of having surrendered to something bigger, of doing something beyond your own ego. And psychedelics um, seem to be the best way to do that. Not to say that yeah. there aren't other explicitly religious ways um which i'm still I think that definitely of, helps yeah. that definitely helps and you know young once said where we once had you know the spirit we've placed the human genius which i think summarizes some of what you said earlier and that was certainly the case in my own journey but what i really realized 
with plant medicine help, but probably I could have gone on that journey without plant medicine too, was that I had to get out of my thinking mind. Like my healing was the journey from the mind to the heart because the heart knew all the secrets, right? It was all emotional mm. based, right? I could have spent 20 more years in talk therapy talking about stuff. It would not have solved the problems for me. It was not a matter of the mind, right? And I think that's mm. where the spiritual connection comes in because in order to connect to my heart in the way that I had to, I relied on something outside of me to give me the assurance that it's safe to go there because I had huge walls around my heart, right? And, mm. you know, plant medicine showed me that it's okay to take these walls down. And now my life is so different, mostly because I walk around with a heart that's wide open. And my daily practice has become to not close my heart despite all the things that are happening in our modern world, right? And that's that's my biggest integration practice. Mm. Yeah. I, I do wonder, though, if there are other ways than plant medicine to learn these different parts of yourselves to um, access these deep portals into your consciousness. I mean, I mean, mystical experience is universal. Um, mm -hmm. and we, and we, and I know you've written about this. I've written a little bit about this, but have read about this to some extent about, um, these transcendental states, um, these, uh, states where you transcend the ego and of the thinking mind, it's universal and it's already sort of, uh, within, it's not something that's in the chemical or in the plant. It's, it's rather the plant activates what's already there. Um, yeah. so I, I assume that, you know, these kind of states are possible to be had within, uh, some kind of Christian setting or Hindu setting. Um, but I, but yeah, I, I still remain a little uncertain as to what that, um, would look like and what, like, like what, I guess there isn't any scientific research on to, um, having a mystical experience in, in the, those religious settings and what the efficacy is. Cause that by nature, those experiences, they're not, they're sort of beyond, statistical or scientific understanding so there there is some mystery there as yeah. to other and, ways of doing this and as you said that's that's why psychedelics are so healing yes it's healing to you know be able to revisit your trauma etc but you know that's also what they repeatedly have shown in the research if people get better after psilocybin therapy, that's highly correlated to whether they had a mystical experience or not. And you don't always have a mystical experience on psychedelics, to be clear, right? Certainly a matter of dosage. But, you know, when I took that tab of LSD, which is like the normal dose, I don't think it was a mystical experience. It was reality embellished and reality more beautiful, but it was not a mystical experience. But there's certainly ways to get there. And, you know, it was during that Vipassana retreat after, you know, that memory came back and I kept meditating, I reached states that were very similar to, you know, peak ego dissolution states that I'd experienced during psychedelics. And that's when I really realized this is the reality of truth because there are multiple ways to get there, right? It's not just the plant that you drink. If you also just get your mind quiet enough, you can access the same realms, right? And you can access it with breath work and there's specific, I think there's depth hypnosis is another methodology. So there are ways. It's just that all of these other ways require so much more work. And we're all so impatient <laughs> that most of us, you know, don't, don't feel compelled to pick up the meditation practice that can maybe get you there, but it's going to take 10 years and not 10 days, like an ayahuasca retreat. Yeah. Well, even that too, I, I know many people who've been meditating for years, but they're still depressed and have many issues. Um, and that can be for a number of reasons. It could be your, as, as Sam Harris has talked about in his books and in his podcasts, that uh, it, it did take him about 10 years to realize that what he was looking for was already there inside of him. And um, that took um, working with different modalities of meditation. And for him, it ended up being... Um, a kind of non-dual practice, um, mm -hmm. uh, and it was—I uh, I forget um, which exact teachers—but it was within Theravada Buddhism and yeah. Advaita Vedanta within the Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. um, and which I'm—I'm I'm, I'm reading a lot about right now, and I'm—I've got some essays in preparation for my Substack. But the idea being that um, the true divine nature, the the essence of your existence, the solution or the healing that you're looking for 
it's already there. It's, it's almost too close to the surface, um, which is, which is interesting. And that's something to think about, but, but I do still wonder though, like in like meditation is just so much different. Like it's not like, are there like, I feel like it's very different if you get into a very deep meditative state, if you're meditating for 10 hours for 10 days and you get into this transcendental state, isn't that more um, about I think I just cut off a little bit. Isn't that more about is the last thing that I heard? Pardon? Uh, isn't that more about and then it cut off? Could you repeat the ending of that sentence? Sure. Yeah. So, so isn't meditation? So meditation is more about transcending and rising above thoughts, right? Whereas the psychedelics, it's about going into the thoughts with less fear, less anxiety, more openness. So one is actually addressing yeah. it. The other is kind of transcending it. And I, and I wonder um, if, if, if just the transcending alone can work. I mean, it, it has worked for some, for many people who I've talked to. I mean, the, the, the Buddhists, you know, people who have been meditating for years, they've um, clearly, they're, they're, they sort of exist in a different realm of consciousness where they're, they're just yeah. not suffering as much as the ordinary person. But I do wonder what the, what the differences are between the two and when, how a balance can be struck. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I agree. It's different. I would never compare meditation to psychedelics, but if you think about it, that experience that I had during that Vipassana, I had two experiences, right? I had a mystical experience which happened maybe on three different occasions um, towards the last three days of the retreat. And then I had the experience of that trauma coming up, which is also something that plant medicine does, right? Like the Vipassana meditation specifically blurs the line between the conscious and the subconscious because of the technique um, of how you meditate. That's what it is intended to do, right? So it was very therapeutic in that regard. But I agree that transcendence can only get you so far, right? And I think that's what is also so dangerous about psychedelics. And it's like the, the experience itself really invites you to spiritually bypass because you have these transcending experience and you realize, oh, I'm not, you know, what I am in the day to day. I'm really that, right? And that's a great insight to have. And that's, I think, what's going to kickstart the spiritual journey for a lot of people. But that insight alone doesn't make all the other things in your psyche go away, right? It should be the basis, right? The foundation that you have an understanding of the reality of what you are, right? Which is unity consciousness manifested on this planet in this specific form. Um, and that's what the psychedelic experience teaches us, right? The connectedness of it all and, and such. But it doesn't make it any easier to live with the mind that, you know, your specific experience on Earth has brought you up in, right? You still need to face that and you can meditate all you want, I think. As as you said, I agree because just by detaching yourself from that from your thoughts and creating that distance, you're still not changing the contents of your thinking, right? And that's what the more I think like therapeutic healing work can do, right? So whereas before all this work, I had such a loud inner critic and I've been meditating. That was the first thing I ever did for myself years and years ago. And it helped me create a little bit of distance between that really loud inner critic and who I really was, right? Which was not always critical. <laughs> um, but it's still a constant hassle, right? To do that managing and to always make sure you distance yourself, et cetera. And then sometimes it doesn't happen. And I, start listening to it again but what psychedelics really did and not just psychedelics I guess but the therapeutic work that I did in conjunction with it is the inner critic now is so quiet I could still there and I think that's something that's important to recognize as we go through healing processes when you heal something it doesn't mean that it's gone right if you have a wounded child that's never going to be gone it's always going to be there but it you change how you relate to it right now and the critic for me now is still there but I barely hear it because these other voices are just so much louder. So sometimes when the critic shows up, I'm like, oh, she's still there. Great. But then, you know, I dismiss it and I don't listen to her. And I think that's like the gift that really the therapeutic work has given me, which I don't know if transcendence can get you there. 
Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll probably have you on again uh, at some point in the future to talk about your, your latest article and go deeper into um, how certain people may be able to spiritually bypass um, various difficult parts of themselves or different memories in the past um, through psychedelics or meditation. Um, but I do, but I, but we have about 10 minutes. I, I do want to go back to, um, so you did the second ayahuasca uh, retreat um, where you said you relived the sexual trauma. Yeah. Um, and then did you do ayahuasca um, several times in the future? Can you, can you sort of roughly paint yeah, what happened yeah. afterwards and at which point, um, um, or, or if there was a point where then you stopped doing it yeah. on any sort of basis? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I returned and then within, I think, six months, I did one, two, three, four retreats. And each retreat has four ceremonies, two of which are Ayahuasca and two are San Pedro. So I did a sprint, right? Because I had this mindset, okay, I'm going to return to the medicine and I'm going to drink it as much as possible, as much as needed to permanently overcome my mental illnesses. I did not want a functioning eating disorder, which most professionals were telling me I would have for the rest of my life. I was convinced that I was, there was a possibility to overcome that completely. And that's what I was shooting for. And luckily, you know, I'm very stubborn and I just stayed stubborn with that. So I returned quite a lot in that one year, but then, you know, that's now been how long ago? Like more than, I think like eight, 10 months maybe. And I don't feel the need to go back because I mean, I will go back probably once a year, just, you know, to keep the connection with the medicine and as like, I guess, spiritual maintenance. <laughs> but for me, that was like very targeted. Like I'm doing this to heal these specific issues. And once I healed them, you know, my eating disorder is gone. Now the PMDD is gone. The PTSD is gone. Like all these things that I came into the experience with are now all gone. And I'm, I really feel like I've been giving a second life. Like I could probably cry every single day about how different I feel now than compared to where I was before this journey. And I'm not trying to say that always everything is, you know, roses, which is not the case, but I'm now in a place where I'm able to experience and hold the full range of the emotional experience, which I never was before. And that's been like what saved my life. Right. So I did it a lot, but now I'm not in a position where I feel like I need to maintain the same, I guess, frequency. So it was the fourth ayahuasca retreat that did it for you? Where that, um, that cured your eating disorders and the depression? It was depression? a process, yeah. So there were two um, that were very close to each other. So I, I did the, the third one then that I did. I thought this was going to be it. I really felt that this was going to be the one where I like pull everything out once and for all. And on the final day of that, and I had a very healing experience, which led me to believe that I might be done with the eating disorder. And then on the final day, um, the Wachuma, the cactus brought up another topic, which was like this belief of it's not safe to feel. And I left with that. And I, you know, I was so overwhelmed by the grief around my childhood and how I, you know, walked, came away from it, I guess. I relapsed the next day and I was panicking because I thought, you know, that was going to be it. So together with the two guides that I was working with, we decided that it was the right move for me to do another ceremony two weeks later, which I think in most cases I wouldn't recommend people, right? Because you need time to integrate, but it had just opened another process for me on that very last day. And I could have either, you know, done six more months of integration work and therapy, or I could do more ceremonies and try to cl close the process that way, which is what ended up happening, right? And then that was really the first, I remember the first ceremony of that, that retreat, ayahuasca did nothing but make me feel safe for four hours. I like feel a deep feeling of safety. And I, I really think that just reset my inner system that now I no longer, you know, have these urges for these behaviors because I now know that it's safe to feel everything that I might feel. So it definitely was that that last retreat, I think. But it was it was also, you know, it, it's a process. It's all the pieces that I discovered from the prior retreats, and then it just all came to like this big closing, kind of. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Interesting. Like all the puzzle pieces fell in in the right places. Yeah, I think in that last retreat. Yeah. Yeah, I have two more questions for you. The first yeah. one is just one I just thought of. It is interesting. Um, Maybe um, if you could 
maybe use one sentence to describe each of your four retreats briefly. So like, what was mm-hmm. like the main idea of the first one and the second, the third and the fourth? Yeah. Can, yeah. can you like briefly summarize that? Just a progression? Yeah. So it was retreats? five retreats, including the one that was with me in Costa Rica. So the first one okay. was, you know, discovering that childhood abuse had planted the belief inside of me that I wasn't good enough. And then experiencing this unconditional love that I never experienced before. Um, and, you know, learning that I was in fact whole and always have been. The second one was healing the um, sexual trauma and realizing that there was no shame for me to carry, but it was like the shame was, you know, for the other person to carry, but then also forgiving that other person for what they did. And then the third one was really difficult. Um, I was like in a six hour death loop. (laughs) It was one of the most challenging experiences of my life. Um, But it was the retreat where I met my inner child for the very first time. And from that one, we began the, I really began the inner child healing, right? So the fourth retreat then was um, teaching, teaching the inner child the kind of, you know, coping skills it needed to no longer rely on an addiction. That's the fourth and the fifth were both the the last ones. Mm. Interesting. And then after the fourth one, um, or um, like after the first, second, and third, you still had your eating disorder, or was it? Yeah. Uh, or or was it getting less and less pernicious, less and less um, in in control of you? And then, so is, is that is that kind of how it worked? That it was slowly getting less worse, and then after the fourth, it was gone, or was it sort of going up and down? And then after the fourth, it was gone. Yeah, I think it was getting less frequent but the episodes when i did have behaviors became more severe and i do think there is a part surrounding that you know that part of me that was binging and purging so voraciously just realized that like it was at danger like that i was getting close to you know what it's been trying to protect me from for like all these years and i I think that part panicked and that's why you know some that's why i relapsed for example the day after i had that really profound insight around like safety as a kid to feel emotions. Right. And so the, the behaviors were still really strong um, until the very end. And then they just, you know, were, were suddenly gone pretty much. But another thing that I did, which is important to note is that I also in between the third and the fourth retreat did an outpatient eating disorder treatment, which is essentially intensive group therapy almost every day. And I did that for six weeks and, I think the combination of the two is what helped me get out of the eating disorder because with food, you still like with other drugs and alcohol, it's easier because you can just cut out the substance. Right. But food, you're still going to have to eat. So you're going to have to develop a relationship with it. And that's what, you know, that therapeutic help really guided me to do. And that's again, integration, right? Mm. Yeah. So, so after the first retreat, um, you still had the eating disorders. It was all pretty much all there. And then after the second one, um, did it get better? And then the third one? Um... No, it was pretty much until the, the very, until the fourth one, I had it. Mm. Maybe less oh, frequent, okay. but the episodes were still as severe, if not more severe. Mm. But maybe, so it took four. maybe fewer. So did this uh, group therapy you did and then did the fourth retreat. And yeah, the after, fifth one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It was gone after the fourth. It was gone after the fourth. And then, you, then you did another one afterwards. No, after it was, it was gone. only gone after the fifth. Oh, it okay. was only gone after the last one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then it was gone. I'm, I'm, so, so after the fourth, was it, did it get less severe significantly? So, no, the fourth one, I did two weeks later, I did the fifth one. So for me, right. in my mind, that's almost like one retreat with a few days in between. But um, right. that's that's what I meant. After the fourth retreat, the insights that came up were so, like, I was so overwhelmed by the grief that it brought up in me that I pretty much had an episode the following day after ceremony, which had never happened before. Because usually after ceremony, you have this afterglow and you feel great. And I felt, like, way worse than I felt before the ceremony going in, which is why I decided to go back to it, right? But, yeah, I still had mm. that. And then I had, like two, three relapses in those two weeks. And then I did the fifth retreat and then that was it. Mm. And then, yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious about that. After the fifth one, 
Like, did it take more integration, more IFS therapy or anything else? Or was it just, just instantaneously just gone right after that journey? Well, I was in that treatment program then, but the urges were gone. Uh, right after I get, the yeah. yeah, I was still like, it was very important for me to eat, like make sure I eat enough food and don't restrict and all these like nitty gritty things. But the big problem with an addiction is the urges it creates, right? And the cravings. And these cravings were gone. I no longer had a part inside of me that felt like it had to binge on copious amounts of food for whatever reason. I just ate like a normal person. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Just the, the only other th question I have is where other drugs come into this. So you, we've talked about the five ayahuasca retreats. Um, mm -hmm. was, was psilocybin or MDMA or anything else um, integral in your journey beyond just recreational use or experimental use? Well, during four of those five ayahuasca retreats, um, I worked with both San Pedro, the Huachuma cactus, and ayahuasca together. Not at the same time, but consecutively. So ayahuasca in the evening, Huachuma during the day, ayahuasca in the evening, Huachuma during the day. That's the format. And the Huachuma is, in my journey, I would say almost as important as the ayahuasca. It's a very underappreciated psychedelic, in my experience, in my opinion, I mean. Um, but that was pretty much it. I had a few mushroom journeys, but none of those were like the, for me, the mushrooms always have the same message, which is you're perfect as you are. The universe loves you. Now go and have fun and don't take everything so seriously. That's, I always get that message from the mushrooms. Um, that's <laughs> really? healing certainly, but it was not enough huh. to, you know, get me out of my addiction. How many grams I, are we talking about? Like 3.5, four. Okay, because I know for smoking addiction, um, Jordan Peterson talks about how psilocybin-assisted therapy is by far the most effective treatment for it, um, and how um, the, the psilocybin can help uh, break down rigid thought patterns and specific yeah. focus on certain things. It, it can deconstruct certain addictions. I, I have heard that, but it's, it's interesting. Oh, yeah, how, totally. That's, totally. Not, that's not the effect that you got, I guess. I wonder mushrooms, if maybe a higher dose. Mushrooms helped, me, for... mushrooms helped me quit smoking, too. I was a chain smoker for 15 years. And I quit oh, okay. after that first ayahuasca retreat, I quit drinking, smoking, caffeine, everything. And I haven't touched any of these things since. And mushrooms were played a role in me being able to do that. But for me, a, an addiction to nicotine is very different from, like, there's substance addictions and there, there's process addictions and nicotine is a substance addiction, right? Heroin is a substance addiction, but process addictions like eating disorders are more nuanced. It's much more complex, I think. Mm. So that's why like I, I found ayahuasca to be more helpful there, but I'm not saying that mushrooms can't do that. They certainly can. I just think I would have to go higher in the dose and have mm. someone to work with. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, yeah, that, that that's amazing. Um, before you go, um, I want to ask Abby if he has a question at all. Sometimes he um, chips in and has something to say. Abby, you have any questions before we let Julia go? Um, if not, then uh, we'll let you go. Um, but yeah, it, it was great having you on, Julia. Um, really appreciate your writing. Really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, thanks for writing that guest piece for my Substack. Really appreciate that. Um, and uh, hopefully in the future we can um, talk spe specifically again. But it, it was really illuminating to hear about your journey again um, in this podcast. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I think, you know, this combination of just rigorous, investigative reporting with deeply vulnerable personal reports is very scarce and a lot of people are not courageous enough to do that so i'm happy that you're stepping into this role and i'm really excited to to follow where this journey will take you yeah yeah and also that just reminds me too um I, i've been trying to figure out like are there other people too that do this kind of thing like i haven't really come across many people other than you who are consistently writing about their first-hand experiences with psychedelics you know, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a few people on Medium, but not, I think, as consistently as me. And then I, you know, I'm, I've started TikTok and there's quite there's a small group of people that are starting to talk about it on there. Um, but in terms of writing, yeah, I would have to think about that. 
a good question. Yeah, that's a, that's so strange to me. I feel like there should be more people, and I mean, I mean, well-known people too. I'm, I'm I'm thinking. I can't think of a single journalist other than Michael Pollan, or any writer, any blogger, any um, essayist of, of any kind um, who's prominent um, who writes about these about their first-hand experiences. That yeah, I, I'd have to do yeah. more digging, but that seems very rare. So there's definitely a I market agree. to I kind agree. of tap in. That's... There's definitely a need for more people to do this. So the fact that you and I are doing this, it's very, uh, I guess it is very unique. It's it's not being done enough. So And that's yeah. precisely why I started my Substack, The Journey, because I felt like there was so much being written about the clinical research and how the ecosystem yeah. is evolving, et cetera. But where are the personal narratives? Because in the end, what's going to, Get people interested and involved. It's not another research study. It's going to be per- really personal stories from people. That's what gets other people hooked in, right? So that's you know what I wanted to create a platform for. So right now it's primarily me sharing my journey, but I'm starting to pull in more and more other voices, and I hope to do more of that going forward. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, can you oh, hear oh, me? Oh yeah, sorry. I, I just got a phone call that I was rejecting and it wasn't working. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, no, yeah, totally agree with you. Um, and yeah, do you just want to quickly plug in your your Substack name and your uh, TikTok account? Yeah, sure. So I write the journey on Substack, which you can find the Substack under juliabloom.substack.com, and I write weekly. And then on TikTok, I'm find jewels. Great. Yeah. The TikTok I just was looking at yesterday and I was, yeah. I was like, wow, this is really, I, I'm really um, hooked by it. And I feel like I should be doing that too. I don't know. I, um, that is an interesting medium to, to do that. And I never thought about expanding to TikTok and doing those shorter segments. It's yeah. Just, we just, can have a whole other podcast about that. Yeah. I'm super passionate about TikTok. I think it's a very unique opportunity yeah. um, and insane, insane organic reach that you pretty much can't get anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, anybody listening to this, you can, again, um, check out Juliet or Substack and TikTok and also read um, her guest essay on my Substack um, that's going to be in the link in the description. Um, and that's on uh, when psychedelic therapy fails. Um, and we hope to have Julia again in the future to go deeper into some of these uh, issues and talk more about psychedelics. Um, look forward to having you back on sometime, Julia. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having yeah. me, Ra. Have a good one. Have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye.